We apologise to the listener, but due to technical problems on the original tape, there is a faint background voice throughout this tape recording. Once again, we apologise. We come to the second and I trust the third part of these this threefold inquiry into the nature of God's Word. We've been thinking already about the authority of God's Word, and this evening we are going to think about the matter of revelation. What is revelation? The revelation that is contained in God's Word, or more correctly, the revelation that is the Bible. And also, if we have time, we shall think about this other word connected with it, inspiration. These matters are absolutely fundamental to our spiritual well-being. So I'm not going to go back over what we've said about the authority of God's Word, which has introduced all this, but it is recorded, and if any of you have not heard it, I suggest that you hear it so that you may better understand the succeeding evenings. What do we mean by the word revelation? It is a word that we use an awful lot to reveal. We often ask for a spirit of revelation to be given to us. We ask that thing, a thing may be revealed to us. And then in a much bigger, uh, in a much bigger way, we speak of the term revelation. The revelation of God. The revelation that is in the Bible of God and of his ways. What do we mean by the word revelation? The Oxford Dictionary gives this definition. It says, revelation is the disclosing of knowledge to man by divine or supernatural agency. The disclosing of knowledge to man by divine or supernatural agency. The idea is that something which is hidden, something which is obscured, something which is, as it were, in the dark, is suddenly made manifest, is brought out into the light and made clear, is suddenly revealed, expressed. Both the Hebrew and the Greek words, which are translated in the Bible by this word revelation or to reveal, both of them mean the same thing, to uncover or to unveil. The idea behind this word revelation was that something that was covered up is now uncovered or something which was veiled before, is now unveiled. The very word revelation means to draw aside the curtain. And you have it in that passage in uh, Luke 10 and verse 21, you have the, the two words, the opposites. For instance, you have, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thou didst hide these things from the wise and understand. That's the one side. It has been hidden 
from the wise and the understanding. And on the other side, but thou hast, thou didst reveal them unto babes. Veiled to the wise and to the understanding, but unveiled to the babes. Covered before the sight of those with great natural intellect and intelligence. And somehow uncovered where there is humility and dependence upon the Lord. So, you see, um, the Bible is, therefore, the revelation or the unveiling, the uncovering of God himself. God has used this term um, with the idea that he has been covered, he has been hidden, he has been veiled. And um, it was impossible for man to penetrate that, that veil, that covering. But God has now uncovered himself. He has unveiled himself. And that is exactly what the Bible claims to be. The unveiling of God himself, given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in, through certain men to man. Is that clear? It is, the Bible is, the revelation or the unveiling of God himself, given by inspiration through men to man. We have said it, it is the unveiling of God. Yes, it is the unveiling of not only God's heart and God's mind, but it is the unveiling of God's purpose. And it is the unveiling of God's salvation. In other words, the compass of this revelation is that God has, has uncovered his heart. He has laid bare himself to man. And not only himself, but his purpose from the beginning, from eternity to eternity. And not only that, he has revealed the way by which sinful and worthless men and women can through his grace become incorporated into himself, can become part once more of his nature, can become partakers of his own life and nature, and by so doing can become then once more heirs of the purpose of God. This is what the Bible is. It is an authoritative and unique revelation. Now, you see, what the human mind and intellect could never attain to naturally, what was beyond man's ability to discover by himself, God has chosen to reveal. Why we read that rather oh, wonderful passage here where Paul says, you see, um, that what was beyond, as he puts it, things beyond our seeing, things beyond our hearing, things beyond our imagining, all prepared by God for those who love him, these it is that God has revealed to us through his spirit. 
there is a whole realm that it is impossible for natural man to penetrate, to explore. A whole realm that, that once he gets into it, the, his, the greatest of human intellects become folly. They trip up. They become confused and bewildered and lost. It is impossible to discover naturally what God is and what his purpose is and what he claims to be doing. But you see, God has revealed it. And this revelation is what we call the Bible. And this unveiling of God himself is, in fact, a progressive revelation. God has not just suddenly um, given one uh, part, as it was, which was absolutely final. No. In God's wisdom, he began in a quiet way, and gradually, down through the centuries, he has unfolded his purpose. He has un has, as it were, laid bare more and more fully his heart until finally we come to the great climax in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God lays his heart as fully bare as he is able to do so in him. It begins with Genesis and it progresses, it develops, all the way through, unfolding more and more fully until you come to the book of Revelation, where it finishes. Now, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. I want you just to notice this. It's important for us to understand that this revelation is a progressive revelation and that it is only when we come toward the end of the Bible that we really have got, as it were, something more full and complete. In other words, it's like a huge river. There are lots and lots of tributaries, little rivulets and streamlets that run down into it, gradually forming one huge torrent. Uh, until finally it comes out into the ocean. This is just like God's word. You begin, as it were, in the book of Genesis with just a small idea about something. Your, things are not explained, they're just stated. Facts are given to you, which have caused a lot of concern and discussion and controversy. Just facts about this, facts about that. Well, we're just one or two things are clearly stated without a lot of explanation. There is some explanation, especially as to the nature of man, the origin of man, and God's intention in man, his constitution. But the rest is not um, explained or interpreted. And then as you go on, you see, you get a, another little rivulet that comes in of, of, of understanding. And then a little farther on, another. And then as you move on, you come to the prophets, and there's more light thrown upon things. It is interesting, for instance, you take as an example the introduction of the serpent in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. You're not told anything about the serpent. If you only had the first three chapters of Genesis, you'd wonder what on earth it's all about. 
Who is this serpent? Who is this, this creature that can speak and that evidently is the, the, the great uh, adversary of God? Who is he? But you see, it's right on in the book of Ezekiel and the, bo the book of Isaiah, these two prophets that begin to explain to us a little more of what lies behind that, that picture, that, that story that we get in the garden. So you understand what I mean by progressive revelation. We've got the bare fact stated that God has a great arch enemy, a great adversary. And he has come into the garden and has sought to withstand God and to wreck God's purpose. And indeed, it would seem that he has achieved his objective. And everything has fallen into ruin. As you go on, you begin to find somehow a little more is explained, and a little more is explained, and a little more is explained. We begin to discover that this person who was in the garden is not just a serpent. There's much more to him than that. Uh, he may have a serpent-like nature, but we suddenly discover that he was the great, one of the great angels of God, the great archangel of God, the Lucifer, the son of light. And then we begin to discover that he occupied a position with God, which was quite almost unique amongst the angels. And then we find that something went wrong. And uh, somehow other trouble came in. And it's only when you get to the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, that you discover that it was a third of the angels of heaven uh, that, were, of the, that were involved in this rebellion. It's in the New Testament that you discover that this one we're talking about has, is called the prince of this world. And evident, even the Lord Jesus does not gainsay his authority. He calls him the prince of this world. He, when, when the devil said to the Lord Jesus, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, the Lord Jesus didn't say to him, you're a liar. You can't give me the kingdoms of the world. He never for one moment uh, sought to uh, discuss it or argue with him. It's as, as if the Lord Jesus knew because he was called, he calls him the prince of this world. One who has great authority and uh, power uh, in the world. Well, you see, that's what we mean by progressive revelation. Now in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, we read this. God having of old times spoken unto the fathers in the prophets by divers portions and in divers manners, hath at the end of these days spoken unto us in his Son. Now mark the word portions and manners. Hath in divers portions and in divers manners. That's the American Standard Version. Darby has translated it like this hath in many parts and in many ways spoken unto us in the prophets. And the New English Bible puts it, it hath in fragmentary, many fragmentary and various ways spoken unto us in the prophets. You see, the whole thing that God says is, the revelation contained in the Old Testament, right up to the coming of Christ, is in various ways, by various methods, that is, and at, in various phases. 
In other words, God has used all kinds of methods to reveal himself. We'll look at that in a moment. And not only has he used all kinds of methods, but he has had, as it were, certain phases. The revelation has been fragmentary. It has been given first this, and then that, and then the other, until when you, until when you come to the New Testament, all the, the pieces of the jigsaw begin to fit together. And you begin to see, for the first time, the picture as it is intended to be. I believe that's important. Now let's just look at this a little more. This revelation is given, as we have said, through many different methods and different, um, in different phases. How is it given? Well, there are a number of ways by which God has revealed himself in the Bible as we find it in the Bible. First, and I can only give you one or two examples of each of these ways. There are many others, of course. God has revealed himself, firstly, through, the di through direct speech. Well, as an example of that, um, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying. We are told a little later on that he wrote these words, which are the Ten Commandments, with his finger. They were written with the finger of God in stone, by direct speech. Now, this is not just one isolated instance. There are a large, large number of such instances where God revealed himself by direct speech, he revealed himself to the prophets and said, I am so and so and so and so. Not only to the patriarchs, but later to the prophets. By direct speech. Another way that God has revealed himself is through prophecy. Now, as an example of that, Isaiah 53. I'm keeping to well-known examples this evening. Isaiah 53. Well, you all know the chapter of Isaiah 53. The great chapter about the suffering and uh, atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you will see in chapter 52, all of which is part of the same passage, chapter 52, verse 3, you will see, for thus says the Lord, by prophecy, the Lord is here speaking. And then again in verse 13, it is the Lord speaking in the prophet. Behold my servant. Now, now it wasn't, Isaiah wasn't speaking about some servant of his. He was speaking in the Spirit. The Spirit of God was speaking in Isaiah, and it was God who was speaking. Only this time it wasn't just God speaking to Isaiah, it was God speaking in Isaiah out of him. Behold my servant shall pass. That's the way he introduces this tremendous prophecy of the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's another way. There's a tremendous amount of prophecy in the Bible. But there is another way that God has revealed himself in the Bible, and that is through history and experience. Now, when I use the word history, I not only mean corporate or national history, but personal history. That's why I think it's best to include the word history and experience. And I include in that 
not only just the ordinary record of history, the wanderings of Abraham and so on and so forth, but I mean also all the miraculous events that are recorded in God's word. Let's look at an example. Well, Exodus 13 and 14. This is history. Exodus 13, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 13 and 14. Now here we have the story, what of? The Passover and the Exodus. This is history recorded by the Holy Spirit. Whatever others might say, this is sacred history. It is the record of what God told his people to do, how they did it, how they were saved from the death of the firstborn, and then how they went through the Red Sea and over uh, into the wilderness, and should have gone on to the Promised Land. Now, you see, God revealed himself through the Passover, and he revealed himself through the Exodus. And these, this twofold event underlies nearly the whole Bible. From this point onwards, the Passover and the Exodus are the most fundamental things in the Bible. There's no getting away from it. Everything goes back to the Passover, and everything goes back to the deliverance through the Red Sea. Jesus spoke of his death as being directly connected with the Passover and the Exodus. He spoke of his decease, which should be accomplished at Jerusalem. And the word he used for decease was the word Exodus. He spoke of his Exodus, which should be accomplished at Jerusalem. He saw Calvary as the great Passover of world history, by which multitudes would be delivered. He saw his resurrection, his death and resurrection, as the exodus by which people will be taken out of Egypt and into the promised land. Well, I only give you this as an example. All the prophets go back to the Passover. Everything, every great national recovery began with the keeping, the restoration and keeping of the Passover. Oh, we could go on and we'll go on, but I'm not going to. But I've only, not only said history, but experience, yes? Uh, let's look at another way God has revealed himself. Take, for instance, the Psalms. Take the Psalms. Now, now how has God revealed himself? God has revealed his heart and his ways in the Psalms, perhaps more than most other books of the Old Testament. Certainly. And how? He has revealed himself through the experiences of the psalmist. So that when the psalmist speaks of things like, Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the help of my countenance and my God. That speaks to our heart. Immediately we understand that, that the Christian, the child of God, will have some bad times, but he can hope in God. Because God is absolutely rock-like in his faithfulness and love. He'll never desert the child of God. You can go on to many other psalms. You see, there is embodied in the psalms the experience of men of God who knew the Lord and who out of their experience wrote what we call psalms. They were really just hymns of the, of the church under the old covenant. Well, someone else is not quite satisfied. Well, let's give you another example then of the way God reveals himself through experience. 
history and experience. Take Job. I don't know whether you believe that Job really existed. I do. But the whole point is this. Here we have the history of a man. We have not only the history, but the experience of a man who went through depths of anguish. And the whole thing, which uh, is a sizable portion of the Old Testament, is a revelation of God. In the end, there are times when you, when you tremble when you begin to understand the book of Job because somehow or other you just wonder why God could allow so much. But you understand as far, far further on in the Bible you get this little word in the book of James. Consider the end of Job. You see, there is the experience of a man and through it God has revealed himself. So we have direct, direct speech, direct word. We have prophecy. We have history and experience, both corporate and personal. All right. Then we have types and figures. God has revealed himself in the Bible through this, that we call typology or figure. And here's, uh, this is one of the, the Things is used more than any. All these things, by the way, do overlap. You do understand that. I'm only just simply ex as you were defining them for the sake of convenience. They, they overlap. For instance, Noah is a type. And the Apostle Peter takes up Noah in his letters and tells us that here is a picture um, of, of being saved. And we see, we see the ark as a type of the church. We see Noah as a type of Christ. You understand? Um, you get these kind of types all the way through scripture. Jonah is a type. Jesus told us that the only sign that would be given to an adulterous and sign-seeking generation was the sign of Jonah, who was three days in the belly of the sea monster. And Gee, Lord Jesus told us that was a sign of himself. Well, now I don't know whether Jonah knew when he was in the, the um, fish's stomach, um, whether in fact he knew he was making uh, um, scripture, uh, whether in fact he had any idea he was that. I don't think he did at all for one moment. Uh, the whole point is that God revealed, even perhaps unknown to the prophet, was revealing himself through the experience of the prophet. It wasn't just experience there. It wasn't just history. The man was becoming a type. Now the tabernacle is a type. It's a type of the church. And we are told quite clearly in Hebrews that it is a pattern of the heavenly thing. So we have a wonderful, a marvelous type of Christ and his body in which every detail, and you cannot push it too far, that's one thing you can say about the tabernacle, you cannot push it too far. Every single point in the tabernacle has symbolic meaning and is consistent to itself throughout. It is the most glorious example of a type or figure in Scripture. But there are others as well. Uh, we take um, in the book of Exodus the little pool of Mark. You know the story of the Pool of Marah. The children of Israel had been journeying for some time in the wilderness and they came to a pool and they saw water and they tried to drink it and it was bitter. And it was called Marah, which means bitterness. 
and uh, they were very discomforted and very unhappy about the brackish water. And you'll remember, they all groaned and moaned at Moses and Aaron, and Mo Moses asked the Lord, and then he cut down a tree that was by the side of the pool. He cast it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. Well, now, what was all that about? I know, of course, that some have explained that the wood was certainly a certain kind of wood and a few other things, and tried to explain it away that way and said it was all very scientific and so on. But the real point of the matter is here we have a type of lives which are as bitter and brackish as can be until the cross is brought into them. And it is by the cross that there is sweetness and life giving qualities are produced so that it becomes refreshing again and cooling and life-giving. It's a type. Or again, you take um, the dove. Well, now here is a classic example of a type because throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, the symbol of the dove is always the same. It speaks always of the Holy Spirit from the beginning to the end. And not only that, you will find that in every connection of the dove, it is always to do with a new nature. It's always to do with heaven. It's very interesting, I'm not going to explain except just to mention it, the raven is nearly always in connection with the other side. I'll relieve that. We'll take another uh, symbol, which is just as interesting, the one we've already mentioned a little earlier, the serpent. From the beginning of the Bible, right through to the last book of the Bible, the serpent is always a picture of the same thing. It's a symbol of evil, a symbol uh, uh, of Satan, of that great adversary of God. Now there are types and figures. We could go on and we could go on about that. Then there is another way in which God has revealed himself in the Bible. It's what we call theophany, or the actual a visitation of God to this earth. Now there are a number of examples. I'm going to give you one definite example and mention one or two possibilities. There are quite a number of them. Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> Exodus 19, verse 16. Now, really, you would have to read the whole of that passage down to the end of that chapter. Um, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to leave that to you. But there, Moses gazed upon God. It was a theophany. God actually revealed himself uh, before Moses and before the people. The people only saw the thunders and the lightning and the cloud upon Mount Sinai. But Moses went up and met God and saw him. And so tremendous was the vision of God that he had to put a veil over his face because people couldn't look upon him. Now that's only one of what we call the theophanies of the Old Testament. There are many others, and some of them are fascinating. For instance, who was it? Who was it that met, uh, who went and stayed with Abraham and had a meal with him, with two others? It seems at first that they are three angels. But you will remember that Sarah was behind the tent flap 
And listening to the conversation, of course she shouldn't have been, but there she was, with her ear glued behind the tent flap, listening to the conversation, and she heard the angel, or, or the, 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 the one of the angels, who evidently in charge of the other two, say to Abraham, at the right time of the year, your wife will bear a child. Was Sarah, of course, then, was about 98. And uh, she had a quiet, or perhaps not such a quiet, cackle behind the, um, the, the tent, the door flap. And the story goes, not the angel, but the Lord said to Sarah, why did you laugh? And Sarah immediately said, through the tent flap, I didn't laugh. You read the story yourself. But it's, um, it's, it's very interesting. Why, why the Lord said? Was that a theophany? Who is Melchizedek? Is it just used as a symbol by the writer of the Hebrews when he says, who had neither beginning and has neither ending, has neither, nor, neither father nor mother, and so on? There are those, of course, who believe again that Melchizedek was a theophany. Others of us who don't. We believe that Melchizedek was a man who's just used as a symbol. Then again, who was the, the one who met Joshua outside the walls of Jericho and said he was the captain of the Lord's host and bade Joshua to take off his shoes from off his feet? And Joshua worshipped him. No angel, by the way, in Scripture has ever allowed anyone to worship them. Who was he? Who was the angel of the Lord, as we're told, who wrestled with Jacob at the four Jabbok? And um, who Jacob besought him to tell his name. Now it's an interesting fact in scripture that angels normally give their names. They tell you, I am Gabriel, or I am Michael, or I am, um, I can't think of the other one. Uh, but they, they give their names often, uh, in, uh, as recorded in the word. But this one would not tell Jacob what his name was. But Jacob later described it as the face of God. He'd seen God. Now, you see, these are just a few possibilities. There are other actual visitations of God. But these are the mysteries that we've got in the Old Testament, uh, where God has, as it were, revealed himself, expressed himself one way or another. And, of course, we get this term, the angel of the Lord. And it's very easy just to say that the angel of the Lord is a mere angel, until you investigate the term. And then you come up against uh, something which is very, very difficult indeed to describe. Uh, he is either the Lord himself, or you have no other explanation. However, again, I leave that matter. It's another way that the Lord... So we have all these different ways. Direct speech, prophecy, history and experience, types and figures, and theophany. But... The supreme way that God has revealed himself in the Bible is, of course, through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the supreme and full revelation of God. And if we read in John chapter 1, we read these wonderful words, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16, for, us, for of his fullness we all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He 
hath declared him. The word declare is brought him into full view. He has manifested him. And of course it is the Lord Jesus who is the summit of revelation in the Bible. Uh, there it is as if the sun comes out in full splendor. So you see it's a progressive revelation. It's rather like the sunrise in the mountains when at first the sun begins to rise. You just see here and there a few peaks that are caught in the rising uh, ray, the, the rays of the rising sun. But as the sun really begins to soar into the heavens, then every shadow is dispersed, and you begin to see everything as it really is. Everything's bathed in sunshine. So it is with God's word. It's as if at the very beginning you see just a, a few peaks here and there that are caught in, in, in the rays of, of, of God's light, of his revelation. And then as the sun rises, so we see more and more and more clearly. And then again, I think we ought to say too that it's not only the Lord Jesus uh, himself um, who is the supreme and full revelation of God. There is one other way in which uh, God has revealed himself in the Bible, and that is through the body of Christ, his church. We must remember that the New Testament has been given to us uh, through the Holy Spirit by the early church. This revelation was completed by the Holy Spirit through members of the body of Christ. So we've got all the letters of the apostles and others. We've got uh, the, the, the Gospels that record the actual ministry and life of Christ. We have the Acts, which records the history, the first years of the church. All this we have. Well, now, you see, this revelation is a unity. We need all the parts to fully understand the whole. And we need the whole to fully understand the parts. That's very important to just understand that. We need all the parts to understand the whole, and we need the whole to understand fully all the parts. Each throws light on the other. No one piece of scripture can be isolated and privately interpreted. If you read 2 Peter and uh, chapter 1 and uh, verse 20, you will read as verse which is, has given quite a lot of trouble in its translation because it is it could mean a number of things. And this is the way that the Revised Standard Version has translated it. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, Darby and the uh, uh, Standard Version put it more in a diff slightly different way. They say that no scripture is of private interpretation. Darby puts it can stand on its own. Um, whatever the, uh, what we, we might understand by the various translations, one thing is clear. You cannot isolate any scripture, any text, 
or any part of the word, any parable, any story, or any experience, and build on it some great or uh, important doctrine. Cannot do that. Uh, all scripture holds together. It's got to be compared and understood in the light of the whole. It is dangerous to build a big doctrine on an isolated verse or a story or a parable. I think we ought to just say that. It saves, preserves us from an awful lot of trouble. If we will only always understand that scripture interprets scripture and that it is a progressive revelation, and that every part of it must be seen within the compass of the whole. And then again, I think we ought to say this, that in this revelation, not every part is as important. Now, be careful on what I say. Be careful in the way you're understanding what I say. Um, I once said this, and some people then uh, deduced from what I'd said, that it was there, some parts of God's word were not very necessary, and therefore needn't uh, be heeded. I think we've got to understand that this revelation, although it is tremendous, uh, and every part of it is important, not every part is, is as important, or as final, or um, uh, nor is it as profound. For instance, no one's going to tell me that a whole chapter of genealogy is as profound as a chapter in the Song of Songs. Of course, I'm glad that we have the genealogical table. It's good that we've got them. They are important and they are necessary to the whole revelation. But it's not as profound as, for instance, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Or when you come to the 22nd Psalm. Are you going to tell me that that, is, that some other part, perhaps, of, of, of Scripture is as profound as that? No, I see that although this revelation is tremendous and every part of it is necessary, not every part is as important or final as the rest, as some other parts. Of course, to neglect or ignore any part of this book is to harm oneself spiritually. And that needs to be said. It's amazing what people can... What, what, uh, the, way, the way people can be helped from parts of God's word that really and truthfully sometimes you would wonder whether there was any real value in them. And yet it is an, a strange thing that sometimes it is just those parts which uh, 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 God uses to speak to a person when in real need. Well, I leave that to and then I think again we must also say that if the Bible is an unveiling of God beyond our natural ability to attain to or properly to understand, it follows that we cannot approach it in an ordinary way. We cannot approach it as we would approach Shakespeare or Goethe or Tolstoy or, um, what shall I say, 
and mentioned one or two Pasternak or one or two of, uh, today that some people would consider and I consider in some ways to be the work of genius. You can't just actual, you can't just approach the Bible as you would approach those uh, those uh, things. You just can't do it. Because you see they are not an unveiling of God. The Bible claims to be the unveiling of God, authoritative and unique. And therefore it has to be approached on an altogether different level to any other literature. Revelation is a principle. Uh, it is true that the created can never fully understand the creator. The thing which is created just has not got the capacity to fully comprehend. Uh, the, the, the one who has created it. And revelation is a principle. If you and I are to understand God, then it's got to be revealed to us. He's got to reveal himself to us. And the Bible is the revelation of God. But we must have the eyes of our heart enlightened. For it is not enough to have the revelation. Um, I wonder if I'm making myself clear. Some people seem to think this. The Bible is a, the revelation of God. Well, that's all that we need then. So now all we do is take the Bible and start to study it. We'll start to read it and we'll, we'll start to study it and we'll start to, as it were, compare different things and really see if we can't get hold of what this book is about. It is the revelation of God. It is the unveiling of God. Right. If it's the unveiling of God and God has given it to us, well then, let's get on with the job. But you see, that's the whole point. It's not only that God has revealed himself in this book, but before you and I can understand that revelation, we've got to have the eyes of our heart enlightened. Can I put it this way? You know, a person without their sight... Can, ha can be in a room flooded with light, showing the most beautiful and the most expensive and the most valuable things, and yet they can't see it. I think I told you this story before. I was at a blind conference some years ago, and I shared a room with a dear Christian brother who is completely blind. He has no, no eyeballs at all. Uh, he was injured in the war. And, of course, I had no experience before of being with blind people. The first shock I got, of course, was when we were out and it was such a lovely warm day and I thought he would know that it was such a beautiful day till I found that, of course, he lived in permanent darkness. He didn't even know that the sun was up. The only way he could tell was sometimes by the heat. But if the colder wind was blowing, he didn't know that the sun I had always thought that a blind person was rather like shutting your eyes and you can sort of see a kind of reddish light somewhere. So you would know in the light. When I was going to bed, I said to him, what shall I do about the light? And he just simply said to me, oh, don't worry me about the light. You can leave it on all night. He said, I don't know whether it's on or off. So I said, well, I'm off this summer. Uh, he said, go and put it off. Well, I didn't feel I could put it off. I thought, well, he'll fall. you see something will happen to him if I put it off. You don't, you can't live his experience, you see. 
But the real point was that the thing that brought it home to me was, do you know the only way I tell whether a, bu- whether a light is on or not in my room, where I know where the light is, I go over to it at night and I put my hand on it. And if I get burnt, I know it's on. That was the only way he could tell that there was light in the room. Now that room was flooded with light. I could see everything. But you see, he couldn't. He was in blackness. And you know this book is just like that. It is flooded with God's light. But if you haven't got spiritual sight, you cannot see it. All you can do is use your own intellectual abilities. You can only use your own natural intelligence. And there is a sense in which you only become more confused and more bewildered than ever. You see, that's why the scripture speaks about being given sight. About having the eyes of our heart enlightened. In other words, for, there, for you to be able to see, you've got to have an organ in your head which is able to take the light and make sense of it. And this, therefore, there are, there's two sides to the question of revelation. God has revealed himself in what we call the Bible. That is the revelation of God. But the other side is this. Before you and I can understand, we've got to be given our spiritual sight. So, if you will read Ephesians 1, verse 17... We mean that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. A spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that he may know. And then again in Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And then that passage that we read together earlier this evening, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, from verse 6 to verse 16, which I think makes it quite clear that the natural man does not receive the things of God, for they are foolishness unto him. His, his way of reckoning it all, his, his, his scale of values, makes him understand these things as folly. They are just, they're silly. They are irrational. They are illogical. They don't make sense. Somehow or other, you see, he has not got the capacity. It is very much like my, my preparing a beautiful garden for someone who was blind. And I was thinking, I'll put those colours there and those colours there. I'll put the tall things behind there and I'll put those things in front of it. And oh, it'll be a blaze of colour. And well, uh, my friend will be absolutely enraptured by it. But when my friend comes, my friend can't see a thing. And not only does my friend say that he can't see a thing, but furthermore, he tells me that I'm mad. And that there is no such thing as that there and that there and so on. It doesn't make sense, he tells me. And I try to explain to him this kind of plant and that kind of plant, but he tells me that he does, he's not even sure that such things exist. What can I do? He hasn't got the, the faculty of sight. 
And he can only go by my experience. And he therefore naturally feels that I'm to be treated with great suspicion. No, you see, the point is this, that self-sufficient knowledge is a great danger and stumbling, stemming as it does from the fall. You see, when man first took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he took something into himself which made him a self-sufficient type of person. And his self-sufficiency grew out of his own capacity for knowledge, for being able to store knowledge and being able to decide what is what. And you see, when this self-sufficient type of knowledge tries to get into the things of God, you have trouble straight away. The natural man receiveth not the things of God. The natural man, whether Christian or non-Christian. I mean, you may be a child of God, but you may still be trying to use the old natural man in the things of God. You're using the wrong vehicle. And uh, you're, you're, you're getting yourself into trouble because of that. And upon that type of mentality and uh, that type of approach, there rests a divine veto. So here is this matter of revelation. God has given us a revelation of himself. He has unveiled his character. He has unveiled his purpose. He has unveiled his salvation. And it is all found within the covers of this volume we call the Bible. God's Word. Now, before we close this evening, the last ten minutes, just a few words about inspiration. We'll leave it till next week to go on with it. But just a few words about inspiration. This is the twin uh, subject uh, to Revelation. What, is, what do we mean by inspiration? The Oxford Dictionary gives uh, the meaning as to breathe in, to inhale. I don't know whether you thought, whether you knew that was one of the meanings of inspiration or to be inspired, to inspire, to breathe in or to inhale, to infuse thought or feeling into someone or something. Now, this is not the scriptural idea of, of, of inspiration at all. And we must make the difference very, very clear to begin with. The biblical idea of inspiration is not at all someone infusing some thoughts or feelings into certain men who then wrote them down. The word used in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, which we better just uh, look at, <coughs> 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness. Every scripture inspired of God, or the alternative in the margin of revised and standard version and the authorized version uh, rendering, all scripture uh, is inspired of God. Now the word we want is inspired of God. What does this mean? Well, the Greek word we have translated 
inspire means literally God breathed and actually means breathed out rather than breathed in. Uh, it, is a f it is in fact important that we should understand the difference. The Bible is not the result of God um, inspiring certain men with certain thoughts, sort of just uh, as to use the Oxford Dictionary definition, infusing thoughts and feelings into certain prophets and other men of God, playing on their artistic or spiritual capabilities. And then they wrote down something which we now call the scriptures. The Bible is the result of God the Spirit within those men breathing out the word of God. Now it may not seem at first sight to be a very great difference, but it is in fact fundamental. The scripture teaches us that it was God the Holy Spirit in those men who breathed out the word of God. Now let's just see whether that is so. We've read 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. Let us read 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. Now I want you very carefully to note this because the scriptural doctrine of inspiration is very interesting and is so often misunderstood. 1 Peter 1 verse 10 concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did point unto, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. It does not say the Spirit of Christ which was on them. That is the general idea of inspiration. The Spirit of God was on those men, influencing them, putting ideas into them. The scriptural doctrine of inspiration is that the Holy Spirit was in them and speaking from within to without. Alright, look up again uh, to Peter Chapter 1, verse 19. And we have the word of prophecy made more sure, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. For no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Now, uh, the... Um, uh, the uh, Revised Standard Version puts by the impulse of man. It's a rather interesting word. By the impulse of man. By the will of man. No scripture, no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spake from God. Isn't that interesting? Men spake from God. Not men spake of God, but they spoke from God. God was doing speaking, and they were the kind of vessel. Then, look on, being moved by the Holy Spirit. The word is being borne along. They were being carried 
by the Holy Spirit. Alright, one other place. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, having of old times spoken unto the fathers, through the prophets, no. It is very interesting. God, having of old times spoken unto the fathers, in the prophets, by divers portions and in divers manners, hath at the end of these days spoken unto us in his Son. It was in the prophets that God spoke. Now, when we therefore speak of divine inspiration of the Bible, we do not mean that it is inspiring or inspirable. I remember we once had a dear lady who was very interested in things as a result of the Billy Graham campaigns, a theatrical lady, and I remember once she sat in the hall talking away and... Uh, someone mentioned something about divine inspiration of the Bible and she said, oh yes, she said, of course it is, of course it is. I find it divinely inspiring. <laughs> but of course, that's not divine inspiration of the Bible. It's not just divinely inspiring, although that puts into a nutshell the thought of a lot of moderns. Just because it sort of inspires you, that part of it's inspired. It's, that's not the biblical doctrine of inspiration. It's not inspiring or inspirable, although of course it's both, but that's not what it means here. Nor does it mean that God is breathing through the scriptures. That's another modern idea, that God is just sort of breathing through the scriptures. You get a general idea of God in the scriptures, that's the point. You don't want to put too much on the scriptures, but God is breathing through them. Well, of course, again, it's true, but it's not what it, uh, not the biblical doctrine of inspiration. Nor that the scriptures breathe out God. It's not that either. It is that God has breathed out scripture. It's as simple as that. The Bible has been produced by God through the Holy Spirit in certain men. It is therefore in a different class altogether to the inspired work of human genius. That has come by another form of inspiration. I am not for one moment saying that God cannot inspire certain things. It may well be that certain human works have been inspired by God. That is, there has been a divine impression made upon a life. And using again the Oxford Dictionary definition, Certain thoughts and feelings have been infused, and as a result, certain works have come out. I'm not only thinking of religious works, but what are sometimes called secular works. It may be that some can be called inspired in that sense. But the Bible is not the result of that kind of inspiration at all. The Bible is the result of God himself in certain men by the Holy Spirit breathing out what we call the scriptures. Now I want you also to note that this inspiration covers every part and phase in the construction of God's word for the Bible. Every part of it. Human temperament and background. God was in the prophet. 
Well, it doesn't matter whether it was a Jeremiah who was a very dramatic person, one day up in the heavens, next day down in the trough of deepest despair. Or whether it was Isaiah with his great and cultured background, his royal blue blood, God was in him. Or whether it was Amos the shepherd, a man who wasn't used at all to culture or a high standard, God was in him. It might have been Elijah, or it may have been Malachi. It could be Moses, and it might be Daniel. God was in them. They were different men, different backgrounds, different temperaments, living at different times, but God was in them. That's one point. Then again, it doesn't matter. This word inspiration covers the prevailing conditions and knowledge of the day. And this causes a lot of trouble with some people. They, they want to know how much certain of these men who were used by God uh, in this way, how they were conditioned by the prevailing uh, knowledge uh, and understanding of their day. But you see, the whole point is this. In the last analysis, it was the almighty God who was in them, who knows all things, who in fact spoke. Now, I am not, a little later on, probably next week, we will deal with the relationship, or try to deal with it, because it's almost uh, an undealable subject, uh, the relationship of the divine and the human in this question of inspiration. But what I am saying this evening is that this word inspiration covers every single phase and part of the construction of the Bible. So it doesn't matter whether it's right back in antiquity in Ur of the Chaldees, or whether it's in Babylon, or Nineveh, or whether it's in Rome, or whether it's in Jerusalem. It is God the Holy Spirit in these men who is breathing out his word. And I want you to notice something else which I think is often overlooked. This word, all scripture, is inspired of God, or if you like, every scripture inspired of God. The word used is not every saying inspired of God, but every scripture. And the word word used means the written form. Now, isn't that interesting? So this word inspiration covers not merely what was orally given, but transmitted into writing. All scripture. That not only which was given at the time by preaching, by word, but what was the way it was finally put down into written form as we have it. The word is scripture. So again, we this word inspiration covers then every part and phase of the construction of God's word. The scriptural idea of inspiration does not, however, mean a mechanical dictation or the putting aside of human personality and will. In this, it differs from the Gentile idea of inspiration common in the days of the Bible when it was actually being compiled and still today common in Spiritism, for instance, and other things. The idea of inspiration there is of possession and of a kind of possession in which the human will and personality is entirely suspended and something else within talks and speaks and reveals or even get dictation. 
that this is not the inspiration of God's Word. In no place in God's Word does inspiration mean the suspension of human will or personality. Very much the opposite in actual fact. Now, of course, there may be ecstasy with revelation. And, of course, we English people are, on the whole, rather afraid of ecstasy. But um, uh, it is true that there is such a thing as ecstasy, and sometimes it does go with revelation. But uh, for those of you who want to look up this matter, you will find it very, a very interesting little side, aside, if you like, almost, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32, where it says, concerning this very matter of revelations and tongues, and all these ecstatic things, things to do with, in an atmosphere of ecstasy, but the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, the biblical idea of inspiration never means the loss of self-control. It's very important to understand. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. Um, I'll just say this last word this evening. Uh, this revelation of God, in a way which is itself impressive, has been given by the Holy Spirit in and, in and through men at different times and of different temperaments, in the style, the methods, and the vocabulary of their own day. Now, if the Lord will, next week we will look at those differences. We will compare certain men, their backgrounds, with each other and see the other side of the picture. For, you know, I believe, I, I hesitate to say who it was. I don't know whether it was Westcott or who it was, but it was one of the great Bible scholars of the past generation who pointed out that there was a most remarkable similarity between the living word and the written word, the living word being Christ, in the sense that Christ is both God and man. And it is almost impossible for us to distinguish what is man and what is God. The two have mingled together in a mystery. And it is also true about the written word. We are up against the mystery. We have on the one side the divine, and on the other side we have the human. And the two mingle, and try as we can to distinguish them. It is sometimes very hard. Uh, at the same time, it is perhaps uh, a most instructive and corrective uh, thing to actually <coughs> investigate uh, these matters, because you can either have an idea of inspiration which rules out human personality and will altogether and makes people little automatons that simply just say something that's coming from within, or you can go to the other extreme and say that it's all human activity with God standing, as it were, in the wings, just sort of uh, giving a little bit of encouragement and generally influencing things to go in the right direction, more or less. Well, those two views, neither of them are right. It is in this amazing union between God and man that you've really got the heart of the matter. 
Ашалый.